Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Joe Zimmel and Valerie Friedman. Your Honor, if it please the court, I ask the men and women of the jury to look into the eyes of my client, John Rowland, sitting there quietly typing on his itty-bitty typewriter and ask themselves if he could possibly be guilty Excuse of... me, counsel. Yes, Your Honor. The man you're pointing at is not your client. He's not? No, he's the court reporter. Oh, okay. Which one is my client? That man, seated there. Wow. He looks incredibly guilty. Ladies and gentlemen of the jury, let's go at this from a different angle. My client was depressed, understandably, because he lives in Connecticut, where there is a terrible malaise and a stagnant economy. People are crazy unhappy here. Your Honor, my client is innocent by reason of insanity. He was crazy unhappy because of the mess created in his own state by decades of incompetent leadership. Yes, but wasn't your client governor for 10 years of that time? That was not mentioned to me. Still, just because he was a lousy governor, that doesn't make him a murderer, Your Honor. He's not on trial for murder. He's on trial for offenses having to do with disclosure requirements in our federal election laws. They dragged me away from a Simpsons marathon for that? Your Honor, this kind of thing was not covered in any of the Law & Order episodes I watched to prepare for this trial. I move for a mistrial based on incompetent counsel. So ordered. Case dismissed. Yeah, Johnny G, high five. No? Okay, be like that. Today on The Scramble, a New York Magazine writer asks, what's the matter with Connecticut? Also, a preview of the Roland trial and the saga of a supermarket where the workers loved their CEO enough to walk out for him. And now, observing a moment of silence for the Russian outer space sex geckos. Colin McEnroe. Yeah, this is a very hard day for me. As you probably know, the Russian uh, sex geckos were being experimented on. Their mating habits were being observed in space. Uh, they arrived home and they are <clears throat> not alive. We're going to uh, do a three-part show today. Uh, as you heard, uh, in the second segment, we will be talking to Norm Pattis, a criminal defense and civil rights lawyer, uh, give us a preview of the trial of Governor John G. Rowland. Uh, there'll be a pretrial conference in New Haven today at four, and then things get rolling, assuming they don't cut a deal today. Things get rolling tomorrow in New Haven, federal court uh, tomorrow. Did I say that tomorrow? All right. Uh, that'll start tomorrow morning. And then in the third segment, Casey Ross, a business reporter for the Boston Globe, is going to tell us this amazing story, which I haven't followed all that closely, but I got really interested over in it over the last week uh, about Market Basket, which is a chain of supermarkets uh, in Massachusetts and, and I guess other New England states, but not here. Where, uh, which may contribute to our malaise for all I know, where they loved their CEO so much that when he was squeezed out by other members of his family and kind of a takeover, they walked out to the employees, walked out too, and uh, didn't come back until the CEO came back. So anyway, we'll give you sort of a sense of, of that story. It's, it's not, I mean, in an age of CEOs who uh, kick puppies on elevators, uh, it's a, a different kind of relationship uh, with, uh, with the CEO. We need more of those. Uh, and in, in an odd way, both of those stories, the Roland trial and, and perhaps the story of the relationship between rich CEOs and their workers, 
which is not typified for the most part by Market Basket, play into our first segment. It's a conversation with uh, Annie Lowry, a contributing editor at New York Magazine. Uh, she's got a piece, What's the Matter with Connecticut?, in which she sort of wonders uh, about, first of all, a malaise that it has been debated and talked about uh, in a newspaper letters to the editor and uh, and and columns by peculiar newspaper columnists, uh, but also seems to really play out in some real economic indicators and, and really does seem to tell a story of, among other things, economic equality, which contributes to a kind of stagnation. So uh, when this went up, we all got very interested. And uh, here's Annie Lowry uh, to talk to us. Welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. So what got you started on this? I mean, you do start your piece off with some letters to the editor that did appear in the Hartford Current. Is that what triggered your interest in this, or have you been sort of watching the inequality question in Connecticut for a while? You know, I uh, had been thinking about it for a long time uh, before this, but then, you know, saw the letters. And I think that um, part of what was interesting to me about the letters was that they seemed to basically – Typify this this sort of it's, it's well known that that Connecticut is a, a state with a lot of wealth and a lot of inequality and and something of a jobs problem like a lot of other states have as well. But it just seems to be this kind of like vocalization of something that I think is like very apparent to a lot of of people in the state, which is that you know as nice and as lovely as Connecticut is, as wealthy as the state is, as big of a middle class as it has, nonetheless it, it has this kind of funk going on. If if you're not somebody who's sort of in the top one percent or five percent of earners. So and, and by that standard, I mean, Connecticut is sort of the, the, the best of states and the worst of states. It has an incredible amount of wealth, uh, by some measures, the wealthiest state in the union. Also, by some measures, uh, the worst off uh, state of the union, 50th in economic growth. That's never good. Um, and as uh, you point out, also, in some ways, the most unequal state, the average one percenter, earns 41 times what the average 99 percenter does, uh, which is that's a very high multiplier rate. So um when you look at that, I mean, it, it does sort of uh, – well, as you say, uh, well, it, it invokes the, um, the work of Thomas Piketty, uh, the uh, very important economics book, which I will not even pretend to have read. Um, but, but a lot of people – you know, so, and so that's a book about inequality, and it's really a book that kind of traces globally the phenomenon you're talking about writ small here in Connecticut, right? Yeah, and and so I think that that what that book helps sort of explain is that like Connecticut is is sort of similar to um, you know maybe a Silicon Valley or a New York, and that it really it has uh, sort of two separate economies that are functioning really differently for your average middle class Connecticut resident versus your average you know financier who's living in Greenwich. And so that second economy has been working really well, right? Like the Dow Jones has been going up. Um, financial firms did really poorly during the recession, but since then the hedge fund industry has rebounded. Um, and, and so if you're somebody who is already wealthy in Connecticut, if you own a lot of property or have a lot of investments, the economy is working just fine for you. But it's a generalized engine of job growth. There's kind of like middle class or lower income jobs uh, that most people in the state have that hasn't been working so well. Um, and, and that's been a very long-term trend, right? Like nothing nothing is really new here, but the state's um, median income, so the income of like if you wind up everybody, the, the, you know, the household right in the middle, 
um, the income of that household has been declining for a really long time. I think since the end of the 1980s, if I remember correctly, once you account for inflation. And so, um, you know, if you're somebody, and, and that kind of helps explain what's, what's happening, how Connecticut can, on the one hand, be not growing, and on the other hand, be so rich and getting richer. Well, so, of course, in, in some ways, the remedies that Piketty talks about are really difficult to implement in mm-hmm. a Republican form of government. I mean, a small mm-hmm. r Republican form of government. They argue for more of a state of federalism, right? I mean, Piketty basically says sooner or later you have to go out after some of that wealth. You have to get it doing other things besides just sitting there uh, accumulating on behalf of one percenters. It's going to got to get off there, got to get out there and, and stimulate job growth and 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 benefit the other ninety nine percent of the people. The difficulty here is that, you know, in a f- with 50 different state governments, you have 50 different sets of economic policies, and you have a system that begins to pick winners and losers, right? You have uh, right. a system where, you know, y- you have an incentive to dumb down your regulations, lower your tax structure, and, and maybe also lower the quality of your government in order to attract the business that's unhappy in Connecticut. Yeah, exactly. And I think that this is, this gets these kind of like really thorny policy questions, um, about what would, what would boost Connecticut's growth, improve the growth of the middle class. And if you were doing those policies that would help your sort of average Connecticut resident, would they end up pushing away the financial industry? Would they end up overtaxing really wealthy people? Um, you know, you get into the question of are those really wealthy one percenters actually creating very many jobs in Connecticut? Because in many cases, it seems they sort of aren't. And so, you know, if you're looking at a national level, uh, I think that the policy questions are very different. If you're looking at a state level, it is. It's a lot about how can you attract residents and businesses that would go to, you know, Massachusetts or New York or Florida or any other state versus Connecticut. And that's kind of the question that I think is, is you know, facing the state is what has it done that needs to become less competitive uh, compared to the, the, the states around it or the, you know, that these are attracting businesses that, that might in another year have gone to Connecticut. Um, and there, I, I think that you, you know, you could, and people have written books about, you know, the best government policy, but it's, it's really, really tough um, to know how to, how to draw businesses in without hurting people who are already there also. You know, I, I do think, and there's a comment on the comment thread of your article, and I'm pretty sure I know who even wrote it. And I think he's got, I think he's got a lot of it right, which is that part of Connecticut's problem is that that you know it didn't the problems Connecticut's problems didn't start in 2014 or even 2010 or maybe even in 2000. That there's been a pretty yeah. unimaginative economic development uh, policy, and and certainly uh, Connecticut missed the the IT boom, right? And it, when the yeah. when Route 128 and other kinds of um, uh, IT sectors were being developed in, in other states. Connecticut just kind of didn't do that. So that right now we've got a governor who's trying to get us into biotech and essentially bribing Jackson Labs to come here and, and start yep. this new kind of genetic research stuff. We're, we're very late in the game, and, and it's almost like 20 years of economic imagination in America bypassed us. Right. I think that that's right. Um, although, I mean, the, the only caveat that I would add to that is that in a lot of cases, those technology businesses are not necessarily generating a ton of jobs either. Um, so you can look at like the state of California, for instance, which has obviously you know, just a tremendous number of technology firms, but it still has a really high unemployment rate. Um, you know, I, and I guess that, you know, the only thing to soften that is I, I do think that, um, you know, if you look at uh, the kinds of jobs that Connecticut 
could be bringing in. It still has a very highly educated workforce. It has an amazing infrastructure. It's close to, you know, obviously close to Boston. It's close to New York. Um, so it could be drawing in those businesses. Um, but, you know, if you look elsewhere in the country at where, like, a lot of job growth is happening, it seems to be in the healthcare industry and education and to a certain extent in oil and gas, even more so than tech. That's the only thing that I would add to that. But I do think it's true that a lot of places saw a lot of economic vibrancy through the 90s that Connecticut just kind of missed out on. And that includes, you know, Route 128 and includes the research triangle done in North Carolina. So I, th- I think that that's correct. The um, And one of the things that we sort of also have to face is, for all of the reasons that you just said, for, because of who is here in Connecticut and what Connecticut historically has been, you know, you can't look nationally and apply a one-size-fits-all solution. Right. I mean, something that's going to help Mississippi or Arkansas is probably not going to help Connecticut. And Connecticut right. did seem to make some mistakes in terms of building infrastructure. This is a very difficult state uh, to get around in, This is a, uh, and that really militates against certain kinds of migration here. There's some people who just kind of don't want to come to a state where traffic jams are kind of the normal order of business. We Another problem we should have addressed during the 1990s. But when you look at these national solutions, I mean, it does seem to me anyway that the things that work in, in Mississippi are not going to work here in Connecticut. Yeah, that's absolutely right. And when you look back to, you know, when Connecticut was experiencing a really good economy that was creating a lot of medical class, middle class jobs, it was really back in the 80s when defense spending was increasing. Um, one other thing that, you know, it didn't get into in the article because it just didn't have space was that actually defense spending grew hugely in the 2000s. It just happened to be that a lot of firms in Connecticut didn't... Uh, sort of join in in that or that they got contracts but those jobs weren't located in Connecticut. Um, So I do think that it's going to have to be some sort of sectoral strategy that brings businesses in. Um, And I I think that, you know, one of the things mentioned is that if the economy just in general were growing faster, that that would benefit Connecticut too, right? Like, you know, to, to a certain extent, the problems that you see in Connecticut are also the problems that you see throughout the country where you're, you're still experiencing this really high inequality, relatively slow rates of growth and, and you know, a, a pretty bad time for the middle class. Although the, the, the difficulty is, of course, that even in times of economic job growth, I mean, we kind of didn't get the post-2008 rebound. Um, yeah. and, and there is something wrong. I mean, I... I I think everybody <laughs> concedes that point. There's something yep. pretty seriously wrong here. And we're in the middle of a gubernatorial election, which is one protracted yep. debate about what it is that we're doing wrong here and whether either one of these men really ultimately has the answers. But you even yep. sort of wonder whether these things are redressable at the level of government. Yeah, you can lower some taxes and change regulation. I wonder if that really is ultimately what determines success or failure of state economies. Yeah, I think that it's really, really hard. I do think that it's really, really hard. The thing is, you know, in Connecticut, you have a lot of problems uh, that one way or another government is going to have to address. They're just necessary for sort of like putting a Band-Aid on, right, and and making sure that the taxpayers and the businesses that are there are doing well, um, you know, whether that's in terms of pensions or just other sort of back issues that you have to deal with. Then creating a growth agenda is kind of a whole new thing. Um I think that, you know, there, there are a bunch of facets to this that I didn't have space to talk about in the article. The fact that Connecticut is a state with a relatively high cost of living is a big issue. You know, the fact that, that, that in some cases the tax burden and the regulatory burden on businesses is pretty heavy. That's an issue. But those are, those are things that, that perhaps government can address. You're right, though. And, and, you know, the whole question of political incompetence uh, is when they didn't touch on this piece. But obviously, you know, again, you could write another 20 articles about the effect that that's had on Connecticut's economy. Because certainly, folks within Connecticut, you know, if you ask 
what are the reasons for the malaise? You know, that, that tends to come up there and, you know, this sort of like top five list of, of reasons of what's happening. <laughs> well, you're from Connecticut, Andy Lowry. And, yeah. and so, you know, really also when we have conversations about Connecticut, it's pretty complicated. I mean, not that every state isn't complicated and kind of multi-tiered, but Connecticut's yeah. sort of weird in the sense that there's a conversation that goes on about Fairfield County, essentially a suburb of New York and, and, and a, mm-hmm. um, a, a, an environment in which a whole lot of um, financial industries either locate or don't locate and a lot of issues having to do with the financial sector either play out or don't. Then there's the rest then there's the rest of the state, but the rest of the state can be divided up a lot of ways too. Certainly one thing that can be said is that cities have been an engine uh, engine for economic growth in other places. Uh, you know, I mean uh, Austin is probably really great for Texas in a way that New Haven, Bridgeport and Hartford simply have not been and apparently cannot be for Connecticut. And once again, I think this is another big question is, will businesses come to a state that don't that doesn't have viable cities? Right. And I think that actually you've seen some of the urban revitalization that you've seen across the country. Even cities, you know, I now live in D.C. D.C. you've had it where you've had this revitalized urban core. You've seen it even in places like Pittsburgh. Um, You know, you've seen some of that in Connecticut, uh, but certainly not to the extent that you've seen in other places. And I guess, you know, probably the biggest and the best example is New York itself, right, where you've seen this sort of dramatic dramatic transformation of downtown. Um, and, And I think that that's probably an issue. And yeah, Connecticut geography, I mean, as you well know, is is a little bit unusual. And its sectoral makeup is a little bit unusual, right? Because you have this financial industry that on the one hand creates a lot of middle class jobs from, you know, just your bread and butter insurance firms and financial firms. And then, you know, you have these pockets of extraordinary wealth. But, you know, say that we took the kind of hedge funds and private equity funds out of the equation, uh, out, out of the equation, um, and just looked at, at Connecticut without them sort of skewing the numbers, it's really interesting. In that case, Connecticut is not the highest income state per capita, right? Mm-hmm. Um, uh, median income in Connecticut is, is uh, really, you know, a little bit further down the list, whereas average income is at the very top. And, and once you, you sort of subtract that out of the equation, um, you look at a state that, that you know, is, is wealthy, is wonderful, has these great schools, has, you know, decent infrastructure, all these other issues. Um, but, but it's just, it's, it's a state that has much more malaise, right, and, and much slower growth. And um, to certain extent, I think that Connecticut's wealth can sort of distort the picture a little bit um, of, of what the actual economy uh, is. And so, yeah, you know, again, if you sort of subtract Fairfield County, you're left with a remainder of a state that is, you know, really lovely and has a lot of these great suburbs and a lot of these great cities, but it has not in some cases revitalized in the same way that other states have. Any Larry, my uh, proposal is that Connecticut uh, be the new Bohemia. Every time I go to New York, it seems like there's sort of less and less space for New York type people to do the kinds of things that young people went to New York to do. I mean, forget about Manhattan, forget about Brooklyn. Uh, increasingly, young Bohemians are being crowded out of those kinds of places. Yeah. You know, we've got Dumbo. You know, it's it's in Bridgeport and it's in New Haven and it's in Hartford. We got lots of relatively cheap real estate for young artistic people to come. I feel like there's they they've got to come pretty soon. They can't be in New York anymore. It's true, and, and and they'd be really really close to New York, right? Like right. that's I think always one of the great benefits of Connecticut is you know you're you're minutes away in some cases from places like Boston and New York, and yeah, and it's it's the state has a lot to recommend it. Um, but I'll be really interested to see how how new governments sort of tackle this this sectoral challenge that we're talking about. Um, right. You know, whether it's through like a revitalized arts sector or through you know more investment in tech firms or 
you know, who, who, who knows, or whether it's just continuing molest. <laughs> <laughs> well, we know we can do that part anyway. The continuing yeah, molest, we, so. we've got that, we've got that knocked. Uh, Annie Lowry, so great to talk to you. Annie Lowry, uh, contributing editor for New York Magazine. Get on their website, nymag.com, and check out her piece on what's the matter with Connecticut. We will take a break. We'll come back. We'll preview the trial. Assuming there is a trial, there's no guarantee. There are 11th hour solutions of John Rowland. Well, before I head into this next segment, let me also just tell you that uh, actually officially, let's see, two days ago was our fifth anniversary of the Colin McEnroe Show. We want to celebrate it with you, the listeners. So we're inviting all of you. I mean, if all of you show up, it's going to be kind of a problem. But we're inviting you, as many of you as would like to come uh, to a party. It's going to be September 30th. Uh, it's at the brand new Infinity Hall in downtown Hartford. Uh, admission will be a whopping $5, one for every uh, year of our existence. And I think you, think you get a couple of drinks and some food and stuff. And we'll have all, some ways to entertain you, but also all your favorites from the show, plus some of the behind-the-scenes gang that you haven't really uh, ever had a chance to meet, plus nose panelists and God knows what else. Anyway, we'll We'll all be there uh, with some music for you, too, uh, to find out more about. Actually, just to buy your ticket. Uh, it's You could probably plunk that $5 down right now. Uh, you go to eventbrite.com. That's E-V-E-N-T-B-R-I-T-E, unfortunately, eventbrite.com. Uh, and if you just type my name, Colin McEnroe, into the little search field there, you'll get the event that we uh, are, and you can reserve your ticket. And you should reserve a ticket because I do feel as though this one may sell out. Anyway, um, it's time to move on. New Haven is the place to be today. Bill Clinton was there uh, for a uh, Dan Malloy rally just a few minutes uh, ago. And uh, then this afternoon, there will be a pretrial conference uh, before the trial of John Rowland begins tomorrow. John Rowland goes on trial, the former governor of Connecticut, uh, for charges having to do, and it's a hard thing to explain, but having to do with violations of the federal campaign finance laws, particularly vis-a-vis disclosure. Essentially, what is being suggested was that he approached two different congressional candidates, uh, was rebuffed by the first one and and, uh, accepted by the second one, with a plan to do work for them that wouldn't be visible uh, to to, to election scrutinizers. So in other words, uh, he would be paid a different way. He would be paid through a different entity. Uh, And uh, so this would allow him to do this work without attracting any attention. Uh, and and there are various reasons for that, including the fact that he had a somewhat checkered past and maybe candidates wouldn't want to be associated with him. Anyway, uh, I hope I've set the stage halfway decently. Uh, joining us right now is Norm Pattis. He is a criminal defense and civil rights lawyer with offices in Bethany and New Haven, and he blogs at pattisblog.com. He's the author of Taking Back the Courts and Juries and Justice. Welcome back to the show, Norm Pattis. Thanks, Colin. Thanks for having me. So um, maybe we could just sort of start with today. There is a pretrial conference uh, today at 4 o'clock. Um, I mean, one always does wonder whether there's some kind of possibility for a, a, an agreement that would avert a trial, although so far as it's unfolded, and obviously we, do, we don't know everything that's going on, it always looks like a situation where former Governor Rowland does not want to accept any kind of prison time and, and that the prosecutors don't want to accept anything that doesn't involve prison time. Fairly hard to read. Reconcile, reconcile those two circles. 
Yeah, especially in the federal system. I mean, Roland has already done federal time. He's got a conviction. Um, federal courts operate under a complex series of sentencing guidelines. Um, his prior criminal, his criminal history will cost him here. So I don't think a negotiated plea that avoids prison is possible. And if that's going to be the sticking point, um, then trial is inevitable. Um, let's uh, sort of dial it back a little bit, because, in fact, um, the, the jury selection process has already been completed. That's something that you've actually uh, written about uh, on your blog and, and talked about. Explain to us how it's different from, from the state process. Connecticut has a unique manner of selecting jurors, unique of every jurisdiction in the United or in the world, frankly. I'm not aware of another that doesn't like it. In each case, we get to question potential jurors individually outside the presence of others. So, for example, in a murder case, it may take two weeks to pick the jury, three or four days to try the case. Federal court operates on the basis of what's called group voir dire, to speak the truth is the, the French for it. Um, and in that case, um, jurors are asked questions as a group, not outside one another's presence. There's a wrinkle in the group voir dire process, however, and that is when jurors want to bring up information that may taint or poison the panel, uh, they do so at sidebar. In the Roland case, this was done systematically, um, leading me to wonder uh, why members of the press weren't concluding that significant parts of the parts of the trial, rather, uh, were hidden from public view. So you're saying you're surprised that the press didn't complain more about the fact that it was impossible to know the basis on which jurors were seeking disqualification? Absolutely. I mean, voir dire is, according to some, the most important part of trial. I'm not sure I subscribe to that view. Um, but nonetheless, um, you know, a public trial means a, a trial that is conducted in transparent circumstances. Um, the public simply doesn't know what the backstory was. They don't know what questions were on the Roland campaign's mind, uh, what reasons it had for seeking to exclude people or for the government, for that matter. So I was a little offended by the practice. Um, let's uh, talk about the trial as it's unfolding now. And there has been kind of a new wrinkle here, and this is at least unusual to me. I, 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 maybe it happens more than I'm aware, but it appears as though the government, well, it doesn't appear that way. It's been said that the government inadvertent, inadvertently uh, sent some email communications that took place between, uh, well, now we have to sort of backtrack a little bit here to explain that that Brian Foley is, a, is the husband of the candidate for whom John Rowland allegedly did do work uh, in a manner that, that, that caused him to be paid in a different and somewhat secretive way, uh, and that Brian Foley and his lawyers were communicating back and forth via email, and those emails were inadvertently shared with John Rowland's defense team. First of all, is this, I mean, does this happen a lot by mistake? or? Well, I mean, it, it, it happens, and here's the process. The government got a warrant for Foley's computer, and it went and seized it and made, I presume, a copy of his hard drive, returning the original to him. Um, almost immediately after that happened, his lawyers, meaning Mr. Foley's lawyers, informed the government, wait a minute, there are notes between he and I um, in the computer, and those are privileged under the attorney-client privilege. So the government then created what's called a taint squad, T-A-I-N-T. Mm -hmm. That is the separate lawyer whose job it was simply to inventory the contents of the computer and segregate out everything that looked as though it could be privileged. Then they would create a privilege log, and the parties could agree or disagree about whether the privileged material uh, what was used by the government. But the purpose of the taint squad is to make sure that the actual prosecutors handling the case don't have access to privileged material. So apparently, uh, in discovery, the government made a copy of the hard drive and sent to Roland's lawyers privileged letters between Foley and his counsel. And now they seek to preclude or to prevent Mr. Roland from using these in his defense. I think it's a hugely significant issue because advice of counsel is a complete defense um, in this part of the country in white-collar criminal cases. And, and the law there is as follows. 
if you make a complete and full disclosure to your lawyer of a transaction and your lawyer advises you that it's lawful to engage in it, um, you cannot be convicted of a crime, even if your lawyer was wrong. So I suspect from Roland's lawyer's perspective, the question is the following. If Foley's lawyers were telling him this was right, uh, why did he plead guilty? Was it because the, the feds threatened to go after Foley's wife and this was just a form of federal extortion? And so, you know, federal prosecutors have, have asked Janet Arterton, the judge, to preclude the use of some of these. The, the ruling has not been publicized, um, but what we've been able to learn is that some use has been prohibited and some will be addressed at the time of trial. I, I suspect these issues will come up again at 4 o'clock this afternoon. And, and just to sort of make that clear, um, based on what you're saying, Norm, uh, in other words, the federal government inadvertently shared emails with Roland's defense team that its own prosecutors were intentionally prevented from seeing. You know, so that Roland's defense team saw uh, federal evidence that, that the federal government, because of that taint issue, never wanted its own prosecutors to see. That's right. And, you know, it's an embarrassing sort of issue for the government. I mean, how do you aim this high and seek to strike a foul blow and mismanage elementary data like this? But it happens. And it happened to the government, and so um, it's a it's a tough issue for um, um, for the for Judge Arterton to manage. Um, clearly, the material is privileged. Foley didn't waive the privilege, um, and the privilege belongs to Foley. Um, now, what does the you know what does the defense do with that material? If its hands are tied on cross examination, well, they're tied. But it's a it's a tough ruling. The other thing is, I mean, you, you know, you always have to look at a trial like this one on a whole bunch of different levels. There's um, there's what uh, unfolds assuming there is no deal, what unfolds starting tomorrow, which might or might not lead to a conviction. But obviously, John Rowland's lawyers are playing two different games. They would like to see him uh, exonerated here at this trial. But also, they've spent a lot of time, it seems to me, laying the groundwork for future appeals, where they will have a bunch of different, different interesting arguments to make. And I suppose you can add this new one to that pile. I think that's right. I mean, and, and that's what a good trial lawyer does. There are, there are three purposes at any trial. Um, especially on the criminal defense side, win if you can. Um, if you can't preserve issues for appeal, that is, object when you see something that looks questionable. But third and most significantly is forcing error. Uh, find an area where two legal doctrines conflict and press the judge into making a decision. In areas that are uncharted or unusual, sometimes judges will simply get it wrong, um, not through any ill will or lack of intelligence, but just because the law is unsettled. So this error, this business of the government providing material, um, you know, may or may not serve as ripe appellate fodder, um, but it's certainly interesting. It, it seems as though the uh, the other narrative that's kind of developing, and it's difficult to know how much Reed Weingarten and, and Roland's other defense lawyers are going to use this, but you, you see it today even in the Hartford Current story by, by Ed Mahoney is, well, you know, most of the time the stuff that we're talking about here, it's really something you'd probably get fined for or something like that. It isn't, this isn't, you know, Watergate. This isn't even Roland Gate number one. It isn't anything <laughs> like that. It's, yeah. it's you know, it, it, it's really kind of a nitpicky uh, federal elections law issue. And the only reason that all this stuff is unfolding is that the federal government doesn't feel it got a big enough bite out of Roland's apple the first time around in 2004. And he actually teed himself up for them very accommodatingly. But, but you know, in, on this much smaller scale, what's your reaction to that? I think that's probably right. I mean, at the time the Republic was founded, I'm told there were four federal felonies on the statute. Now we've lost track. There are at least 4,400. And the way you mix and match the various offenses with things like conspiracy and accessory, um, it's a potentially infinite reach. And so criminal defense lawyers 
complain about something called overcriminalization, meaning when everything's a crime, aren't you giving prosecutors the choice to decide when to prosecute based on reasons extrinsic to the evidence? Now, in Roland's case, you know, the highest public official in the state, a ripe target for an ambitious prosecutor, he's done time, he comes out and he engages in questionable behavior. At some level, he has only himself to thank for this, um, and someone else may have been, may have been fined. But I believe there's also a, a suspicion among members of the U.S. Attorney's Office that he was less than candid in dealing with them. You know, there, there are two ways to respond to an allegation of wrongdoing. Whoops, I guess you're right. I won't do it again. And another is to, you know, rally around the, the you know, close the door in the government's face and say, you know, in effect, uh, F you. Uh, I didn't do anything wrong. I'll see you in court. And, and Roland's got a little bit of that latter tendency in him, I think. It, it must put you in an interesting position because, I mean, in a way, you're a defense lawyer and a lot of the arguments that you just made are, at least prior to your very final statement there, uh, are, are compelling arguments that really the federal government has this just enormous uh, menu of 4,400 ways to go after you or to put a few things together and go after you. On the other hand, you know, just from your writings and stuff like that, you're very much a crusader for clean government. Uh, you want uh, you know, you want a system that works and works honestly and with integrity and effectively. So, I mean, how do you, in what mood, Norm Pattis, do you watch a trial like this? Well, you know, I have several reactions. One is a sort of professional resentment. Roland needed, didn't need to go out of state to find plenty of good talent. There's plenty <laughs> of people in Connecticut that could have tried it. So there's that. Um, but in terms of the broader issue of government use and abuse of power, I, I believe we should have jury nullification in the United States. You know, we, we tie the hands of jurors and we tell them you have to decide only the facts before you and you have to use the law as the judge gives it to you. And then prosecutors are permitted to stand in the court and say we want to hold, you know, in this case, John Rowland accountable. Who holds the government accountable for the decisions it makes? It's not enough to say we do so by the electoral process. Most of us vote in federally once every couple of years, maybe once every four years. And our decisions don't really affect the, 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 the prosecutorial decisions of line prosecutors. I think jurors should know about the consequences of what they're going to do at trial. I, I once had a case, it wasn't a federal case, but it was a murder case where a young man shot somebody else um, over a girl in the presence of some witnesses. And there was very, very little doubt that the young man shot to kill. When he was sentenced, a juror wrote to me, outraged, saying, why didn't you tell us what would happen? The, the boy was, re, was sentenced to 45 years. I said, because the law wouldn't let me. So I think we have systemic moral failures at the trial level. Uh, we let the government posture in the language of accountability, but no one holds the government accountable. Um, I think jurors should know um, and be able to question the government about its motives, just in the, in, in the same way that the government questions prosecutor defense witnesses about their motives. But we don't permit it, and um, you know that's that, that's uh, that's a shortcoming in the system. Norm Pettis, I should have asked you this uh, earlier in our conversation, but let me just sort of go back to this. What are the, you know, before we started talking about the emails that went back and forth uh, between Brian Foley uh, and his lawyers, we were talking about other emails. And one of the things that, uh, you know, that is uh, a characteristic of this trial is there really is quite a lot of email back and forth uh, about this. This isn't, wasn't a set of conversations that was had in parking lots. Uh, at least it wasn't exclusively in parking lots. They, they emailed back and forth about this and they emailed back and forth about, in, in a way that to me just kind casually reading these emails looks like an intent to deceive anyway. It looks like, yeah, nobody's going to ever figure this out. Nobody's ever going to know about this. Um, how much does that count in a case like this? It's, an, it's enormously damaging. Um, I had a case not long ago where there were 6,000 emails. The government selected the 50 it didn't like and it looked the worst and, re and couldn't read them to the jury often enough. Mm -hmm. um, so these um, admissions, uh, these uh, emails of Rowland's will be admissible as admissions of, uh, of a party opponent or uh, of his own. 
Uh, Foley's will be most likely admissible as admissions of a co-conspirator, and they're going to have to eat every one. Now, the, the challenge for the Roland team is to reframe or recontextualize these emails. Um, and if they, if they look as though they're trying to hide something, um, maybe recast that as just trying to preserve a right to privacy. But I think the fundamental issue for the Roland camp is it's going to have to show value for the consulting work that Roland did. You know, what the, the claim is that this was really a smokescreen um, to hide his campaign-related work. And unless the defense can show that he actually performed some bona fide consulting work, I think he's in a lot of trouble. The uh, You know, it's it's odd, too. We've just had a conversation uh, with Annie Lowry before you came on about sort of how Connecticut is perceived and how Connecticut perceives itself, uh, whether or not there's sort of a Connecticut malaise and whether or not that's uh, based on our, our failure to grow economically. In a way, you know, you look at this trial unfolding and you think, wow, there's, there's some interesting connections here, including, uh, A, Connecticut's really peculiar reputation that started to grow up during the 1990s and, and early 2000s, particularly the early 2000s, as a place where political where politically elected officials were corrupt, not just Roland, but a whole series of other ones. And and then also this, you know, this world that kind of constituted the first set of John Roland offenses in which an awful lot of state money was directed at projects for politically connected people, as opposed to building up infrastructure uh, based on what's really necessary, what would really sort of help foster growth in Connecticut, what would help people get around. You know, there, there was this sort of his style of governance was so much about building stuff that seemed to fit in to the plans of political contributors and people who gave him uh, hot tubs and, and worked on his, on his lake cottage. It, I mean, it, it's I just sort of wonder when this Roland legacy ever goes away. I feel like I'm still having conversations that don't necessarily involve his name, but are about things that he did. Well, you know, Waterbury has historically been an unusual jurisdiction. I mean, in the 1930s, I believe it was, Mira was indicted. Um, um, there was Mayor Hayes. And then, you know, you through the Santa Petro administration, you look through problems with other mayors and with Roland, it's almost like the rotten borough of Connecticut. Um, the U.S. Attorney's Office here is very, very um, vigilant on public corruption cases. I, I don't know why they choose to bring them. Um, I don't think anybody's suggesting we become a federal receivership. Um, but at some level, I think that the, the, the decision to bring a close case or a marginal case, as this may be, um, against Roland um, uh, the, needs to be rethought and and. and the damage to trust in, um, in public institutions needs to be reckoned. I, I'm no fan of John Rowland's, um, but I'm not offended by the allegations in this case. It, in my view, it looks like business as usual. Yeah, he crawled, he crawled back up on the golf tee. All right, Norm Pattis, thanks so much for your time. Appreciate it. Thanks for having me, Colin. Be uh, well. All right, and when we come back, we're going to talk to Casey Ross about this remarkable story uh, of a group of workers who liked their CEO so much they didn't want to work for anybody except him. I vowed not to look at the nude leaked photos of Jennifer Lawrence, Kate Upton, and Kirsten Dunst. It's just wrong. Wow, this day is just crawling by. I probably shouldn't have made that vow and also tried to give up Candy Bird on the same day. 
Today's show was produced by Betsy Kaplan and me. Greg Hill appeared in the intro and tweets for us at WNPR Colin. Katie Talarski is our executive producer. The part of Bill Curry was played by the Duchess of Cambridge. For show pages, articles, and leaked nude photos of a flan prepared by the Faith Middleton Show staff, visit our website, WNPR.org. On tomorrow's show, Kevin Hines, the author of Surviving a Suicide. And now, back to Colin. Yeah, so it's the day after Labor Day. We thought we'd tell you a Labor Day uh, story, or we'd get Casey Roth to do it. He's taking a, he's a business reporter for the Boston Globe. He's taking a time out from his many calls to Hollywood to find out who's going to play him in the movie that's being made, I'm sure is being pitched somewhere anyway, about the Market Basket saga. So first of all, uh, Casey Roth, welcome to the show. Thanks very much for having me. And so uh, set the stage for us. This this story, which is about a supermarket chain in Massachusetts and, and I think other New England states, it kind of starts really with uh, a family feud, maybe more like Game of Thrones uh, than like Norma Ray. Yeah, it's, it's um, a family feud that really dates back to the early 1990s. Basically, at the heart of the dispute are two cousins, Arthur T. and Arthur S. Demoulis. Uh, Arthur S. accused Arthur T.'s father, um, whose name is um, Telemachus, a very Greek family here. Um, he went by Mike, actually, um, Telemachus Mike Demoulis. So Arthur S. accuses him of stealing uh, his and other family members' shares in the company back in the early 1990s and um, ended, up being, uh, ended up winning that lawsuit and was awarded a $500 million judgment. And the result of that judgment was essentially to create sort of a Treaty of Versailles type of arrangement whereby the company was split between uh, the two warring factions of the, factions of the family, one faction controlled by Arthur S., the other faction controlled by Arthur T., uh, and they have been fighting over the company ever since. And so, uh, meanwhile, Arthur T. became a kind of CEO, an unusual kind of CEO, CEO in the modern life of America, one that, uh, who was apparently beloved by his employees, as, as they later proved. But even before they proved it, I mean, do we know what it was that made him so special in the hearts of a bunch of supermarket workers? Yeah. I mean, Arthur T. really uh, is sort of a throwback to a, a different era where, uh, you know, an era of more characterized by defined benefit pension plans where if you're an employee, you put your time in with the company, then at the end of your service, at the end of your 30 or 40 years, then you have a, uh, you know, a defined benefit payment uh, waiting for you. And he has continued to manage the company that way. They have a um, profit sharing plan, which is funded to the tune of $550 million every year. They put in 20% of the profits and people that work for the deli counter or in various uh, positions throughout the chain can retire after 30 years working, uh, you know, a relatively lower skilled job and have a million dollars waiting for them in a retirement account. He also issues uh, regular quarterly bonuses. Um, He knows many of the employees personally. He has a personal touch where, you know, he gets to know their families and he's always very solicitous and asking about them. So, you know, he ended up being, you know, beloved by many of his employees. Yeah, I, you've just proved he's completely unfit to run a big American company in 2014. He's a decent <laughs> human being. Um, Absolutely. And so he d- did eventually get uh, moved out. And explain what the, how, how the workers reacted to that. Well, uh, first, you just saw a kind of shock, although I think that a lot of the workforce was, you know, they were obviously very aware of the family feud and aware that that eventuality could happen because Arthur S., uh, gained control of the board um, about a year ago, and he had been 
going through this national search potentially for replacements. So the employees are first shocked and then outraged and then quickly decide, okay, we're not working for this company under Arthur S. or anybody else who would replace Arthur T. And so they essentially shut down the company entirely. They don't show up to stores. They don't buy products. They don't accept any produce that's coming into their warehouses. Really kind of a crisis situation for the company where they just completely shut it down. And so how did this get resolved? I know that we know that just reading the news that Arthur T is back in the saddle, although apparently all the problems are, are far from solved. But, but to what, in what way did this initial resolution come about? Well, uh, Arthur T had approached Arthur S about buying his uh, shares of the company, basically buying him out of the company. And so he offered to do that for about $1.5 billion. The market value of the company is about $3.2 million. Uh, and so they went through this, um, you know, kind of dance for, for many weeks over the potential sale of the company, eventually finally did agree to a deal. Uh, $1.64 billion, Arthur T. buys the shares of his cousin, Arthur S., and several other fam- family members on Arthur S.'s side of the Demoulis family. And so what we've got here now also is a company that you say has had ground to a standstill. So many workers had walked out uh, as to effectively shut down the company uh, in, in virtually every sector of the company. Just the work was not getting done, ranging from stocking the shelves to just sort of the behind-the-scenes paperwork that's necessary to keep a company going. So one of the things they're finding out, I gather, today is – how it's like they're almost putting uh, uh, resuscitation paddles on on a body that's been lying inert for a while. How quick can you jumpstart the heart of a supermarket chain? Yeah, they are uh, trying to do that very quickly. And obviously, uh, when you go through a period like that, and you're not you know paying invoices and you're not accepting product from vendors who rely on you, that's going to strain those relationships. It's going to make it difficult. Uh, for a lot of your suppliers to survive. So they're trying to rebuild those relationships, re-sign contracts. Uh, it is taking some time to get things up to perfect working order, but uh, it's been kind of remarkable, the pace of it. A lot of the shelves are already restocked. Uh, I don't think they're quite as plentifully stocked as they were before, but they're getting there. So and, and, and so the, the stories that we're reading now, and I, I don't want to put too sunny uh, a face on this, but, I mean, it really does... It is like some kind of movie that's going to star Brad Pitt or something. We've got these workers running around high-fiving one another because they actually did this thing. And, and, and you know, stories of, of delivery guys who show up with the first load of potatoes and the, and the workers go nuts and start high-fiving the guy driving the truck. And, and there's – I mean, is this as happy a story as it appears to be or is there kind of a, sh- a, a, a darker shadow lying over it? Well, there's there's darker shadows everywhere. I don't think I think this this story sort of defies any sort of maudlin Disney type of treatment. There are strains of that. There are things. There are aspects of that story that are true. I mean, this was an extraordinary worker revolt that did help, uh, you know, resolve this situation. And in the end of the day, you know, the CEO has returned and the workers get what they want. But it is a more complicated picture in that to do that, this company had to take on an awful lot of debt. So it becomes more difficult for the Arthur T of old to be the Arthur T of you know of present owning this company, which is now more than a billion dollars in debt. How do you continue to make the profit sharing plan 
uh, contribution to employees? How do you continue to keep the low prices that customers have valued over the years? That's what that's Market Basket's niche in the marketplace. It's why it's so popular is that it's less expensive than most conventional supermarkets. So he's got to figure out a way now to preserve that business model. That's a question going forward. He said he's not going to change it, but um, there are financial realities. The other part of this is, I mean, this is sort of done on a non-union basis. It was done sort of collectively without there being kind of a collective bargaining entity, as I understand it. But that meant there were fewer rules in terms of who does or doesn't do what. But now, apparently, you, one of the other things that uh, that has to happen is a kind of reconciling of two different groups, people who walked out on behalf of this CEO and people who stayed there and kept the company kind of sort of uh, on life support until everybody got back. So how does that happen? Right. I mean, there is absolutely that issue and that tension between workers. I mean, you had people, you know, being labeled as scabs who were continuing to go to work when they probably couldn't afford to do anything but that, um, you know. Uh, but you definitely have that tension among the workers where people who decided to keep working through the protest and didn't walk out with their uh, fellow employees are, you know, uh, I'm sure now feeling an awful lot of the cold shoulder from some of the employees who did protest. So I'm sure that that's going to take, you know, weeks, months, years to get uh, to get over for the company. It's always, I think, going to be there. Casey Ross from the Boston Globe. So great to talk to you. Thanks for sketching out this kind of amazing story for us. Sure. It's my pleasure. All right. So uh, we're done today for the scramble. Uh, thanks to Betsy Kaplan, who uh, labored long and hard to pull this uh, show together. I do want to, once again, I want to emphasize, I can't emphasize enough, September 30th, you have essentially a month to make your plans. And what you should do today is go to Eventbrite. That's B-R-I-T-E, unfortunately. Eventbrite.com. You can type uh, your um, type my name. Don't type your name in. That won't do you any good at all. Type my name into the search field. Uh, you'll get a whole little form so you can order your tickets. I also think you can do it at W. WNPR slash events. Uh, so WNPR.org slash events. But we'd love to have you come to this party at the Infinity Music Hall on September 30th, our fifth anniversary. It's our chance to thank all of you for uh, keeping us alive, just like Market Basket. He is all we need. He is loved by you and me. So bring back Did you hear? You're one of the celebrities that had their nude photos leaked. Are you upset? Or I am. I'm a celebrity. <laughs>